Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features J. Courtney Sullivan at her April 17th visit to Chanhassen Library in Carver County. Sullivan is the author of the New York Times bestselling novels Commencement, Maine, and The Engagements. Maine was named a Best Book of the Year by Time Magazine and a Washington Post Notable Book for 2011. Gloria Steinem called Commencement a generous-hearted, brave first novel that makes clear the feminist revolution is just beginning. Sullivan's writing has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the Chicago Tribune, New York Magazine, and the New York Observer, among many others. She's a contributor to the essay anthology, The Secret Currency of Love, and co-editor of Click, When We Knew We Were Feminists. Her first novel, The Engagements, a multi-generational look at marriage and commitment, is currently being adapted for a major motion picture produced by Reese Witherspoon. everybody. Thank you for coming out on what I understand is maybe like the first sunny, warm evening you've had in a little while. Is that the case? I'm really thrilled to be here. The last time I was in the area was for the Opus and Olives event in St. Paul in October. I don't know if any of you were at that event, um, but it was really a magical thing. I am probably on book tour about three months of the year at this point, uh, but I'd never really seen an event quite like that, and it made me take note of this part of the country and realize how much you guys care about books, how much you care about your libraries, which means a lot to a writer. Um, I think especially because writers, I think in almost every case, started out as readers. And for most of us, that relationship started in our local library. So I'm glad that we all share that love. Um, as a Boston native, I'm also forever grateful to that Opus and Olives event because I got to watch a World Series Red Sox game with Dennis Lehane in the hotel bar after. And um, I think this solidified my status as my father's favorite child, which I'm really happy about because he's gotten to tell everyone in Boston that that happened. Um, I come from a big Irish Catholic family, as you might have guessed. And um, for the first 10 years of my life, I was the only child of my generation in this family. My sister is 10 years younger, and our cousins are even younger than her. So for the first decade of my life, I was the only kid in this sea of adults. And um, when I was maybe seven or eight, I developed this habit. Every week, every Sunday, we'd have a big family dinner at my grandfather's house, and there'd be maybe 20 people, 15, 20 people seated around this long table. and. You know, if you're the only child, you tend to kind of fade into the background. So after people had had a couple of drinks and were feeling relaxed, I would find my moment and I would slip under the table when no one noticed. And I would just listen to what they were saying. 
And I think this was kind of the beginning of my writing life, which is really, to this day, made up of eavesdropping and then writing down what I've heard and trying to kind of make sense of it. Um, around the same time, uh, not coincidentally, I started writing short stories and poems and plays. At that time, playwriting was really my forte, but um, I moved away from it. But I would write these plays that were usually, they were pretty long. They were like 40 or 50 pages long. And I would sit in my bedroom perfecting every line. And when I thought I'd gotten them perfect, um, I would convince the neighborhood kids to put the plays on. And I recently learned um, a couple years ago that these plays still exist on VHS tapes in my parents' basement. And I was really excited to go back and you know, see my early work. Unfortunately, all of this dialogue that I slaved over is totally drowned out by the voices of my mother and all the other mothers in the neighborhood saying things like, how much longer is this going to be? Like, I have a chicken in the oven. Let's get the show on the road. So um, that, I guess, is my, my earliest criticism, my earliest uh, taste of criticism. Um, and everything I wrote during this time was sort of about my family and about the things I was hearing under the table and kind of trying to make sense of what I heard. And I think today this is still kind of how I write and why I write. I write to kind of make sense of what's going on around me. Um, and I am still fascinated by the things people say to each other when they don't think anyone is listening, um, which is to say that I'm very nosy. Uh, my husband hates going out for dinner with me because he'll be like, you know, 10 minutes into a story that he finds riveting, and then finally he's like, oh, you're not even paying attention to what I'm saying. You're listening to the people at the next table. But we've, we've found a good equilibrium where I tell him that I'll tell him later if it's really juicy stuff, so he benefits, <laughs> sort of. Um, I think if you are a nosy type person, a great career path is journalism, and that was the path that I took as I was writing my first couple of novels. Uh, I worked in women's magazines for a few years, and then I worked at the New York Times for four years, and I found that, you know, being a journalist was per the perfect thing for me, because, you know, if, if you're a person, you go up to someone and knock on their door and say, tell me everything about yourself, perhaps the worst thing that has ever happened to you, they will say no thank you and slam the door in your face. But if you are a writer, for some reason, people do want to share their stories. People feel compelled to do so. And so um, I found that to be very satisfying work. And a lot of the stories I wrote for the paper ended up, you know, bits and pieces of them ended up in my fiction as well. My first novel was about a group of friends. And my second novel, Maine, was about a big dysfunctional Irish Catholic family from Boston. And so um, when my family got wind of this, that I was writing this, they were a little nervous. Um, I was on book tour for commencement. It had just come out, my first book. And um, I did my first ever reading in Massachusetts. And my whole family came. And afterward, we went out for dinner. And we're seated around this table. One of my uncles, who is not usually the most effusive man in the world, stood up and he said, you know, I speak for all of us when I say that we just love you so much and we're so proud of you. And it's really important that we get this out there now because we know that a year from now, when your next book comes out, none of us will be speaking to you anymore. <laughs> um, another one of my aunts called me very late one night and said, I just can't stop thinking about this book you're writing. 
It was set at the family beach house in Maine. And she said, um, I've just decided that I know I'm going to be a character in that book. So if you can make me one promise, I'm OK with it. She said, please just promise that you'll make me look good in a bathing suit. <laughs> and she's actually not a character. It's kind of a funny thing. Like People who are convinced that they will be a character in your book never really are the people you'd be interested in writing about. And the people you write about and you're afraid they'll see themselves, they never see themselves. It's kind of, a, it's kind of amazing. Um, when it came time to start thinking about a third novel, I chose as my topic marriage. And um, I think this came from a bunch of different places. Uh, you know, I think often when writers are asked sort of where did the idea for your book come from, they'll have like a very pat little answer. But for the most part, I think ideas, at least for me, ideas for books come from a hundred different places, from stories I've heard or people I've met, um, ideas that I'm wrestling with. And then there'll just be something that makes it all kind of click into place. Um, so with this book, there were a few different things going on. First of all, nosiness. Um, I'd already written a novel about friendship, and I'd written a novel about family. And I felt like, well, what's, an, what's a relationship I haven't written about yet? And marriage seemed perfect, because I think that you know other kinds of relationships in our lives, we tend to maybe dish a little bit more about them. I mean, you might say to your friend, my mother is driving me crazy. But I think with marriage, a lot of times, a lot of it is just happening kind of secretly. And we don't know what's going on in other people's marriages. Sometimes we don't even know what's going on in our own marriages, which is a problem um, that some of the characters in this book face. Um, but you know, it's really sort of rich with kind of the ability to sort of peer in and see what's going on, what's happening behind closed doors. So that really appealed to me. Um, also, at the time I started thinking about this book, uh, same-sex marriage laws were changing really rapidly all around the country, and there was a lot of deba debate about this. And every time someone who was against gay marriage, when I would see them on the news arguing, they would often kind of say, you can't change marriage. You know, marriage is this unchangeable, unshakable institution, and if you change it, the whole world will fall apart. When, in fact, I kept thinking every time I heard that, you know, marriage has changed a lot. And so rapidly, uh, I think that we almost forget that it was only a little over 40 years ago that a black man and a white woman could not be married in this country, or that a woman needed her husband's permission to have a credit card. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about how these societal and legal issues shape everyday lives. Um, I think novelists, you'll kind of notice if you follow a novelist over many books, even if they're writing about totally different topics each time, they tend to kind of come back to it, an obsession of theirs. And for me, one of the obsessions I have is this idea that the moment a woman in particular, but a man too, as I've, I've evolved, um, the moment a person is born will determine so much of who he or she is allowed to become and how much of their real self they're allowed to kind of put out to the world. Um, so that was in my head. And also, there was a personal angle here, because um, I sort of had marriage on the brain. I had been dating someone for three years. And every day, someone would say to us, usually one of our mothers, why aren't you married? When are you getting married? When is that coming? And um, we didn't really know what we thought about it. We didn't really know how we felt about this. Um, I remember having a conversation with my mother where I explained that 
we had a dog together and I just felt like that was the deepest bond we could share and like marriage would be superfluous after we had this dog together. And um, her reaction, her face looked like a lot of your faces do right now. Um, yeah, so I was hearing about marriage a lot in my personal life and um, I had a very close friend, one of my best friends from college who vowed to never get married. She wasn't gonna get married. She wasn't interested in that and she absolutely wasn't interested in like a wedding or a diamond ring or any of that stuff. So she had been out of the country for work for many months. She came back and we were having brunch and I said, oh, I'm so happy to see you because I know you're the one person who doesn't want to just talk about weddings and marriage and all of this. And she's like, before you go any further, I should tell you, I got engaged. So I'm like, oh my God, really? And um, not only that, but that she wanted, she had decided she did want a diamond ring after all. And so she didn't have the ring yet. She wanted to go look for one. And after this brunch, we went looking at diamond rings. And it was sort of an out-of-body experience that this could even be happening. Um, we went to a store in Manhattan called Doyle & Doyle, which sells all beautiful antique jewelry, and um, specifically diamond rings. And for me, as I was looking at them, uh, I just kept thinking, I wanted to know their stories. You know, the how did this beautiful jewelry end up here? I know this played a role in someone's marriage, at least one someone's marriage. Uh, what happened in that marriage and why did this ring end up in this store? And I knew that I could never find out, but I knew that I could invent that for myself. And so everything that had been percolating around me, big picture and little picture about marriage, kind of all came together in that store. And I thought, I'm gonna write the story of one diamond engagement ring over a century. And in telling the ring's story, I can really get into marriage and what it's all about. And so, um, as I began to kind of develop the characters, I thought, I want to write about kind of everything that can happen in a marriage. I want to write about marriages that are tested by infidelity, by the strains of parenthood, by financial issues. I want to write about couples who came together where everyone at the wedding was thinking, great idea, and maybe the opposite, too. Um, and so uh, I started sketching out these couples, uh, each one living in a different decade, um, and in a different location. Uh, James and his wife Sheila are, are in the 1980s, and he is a paramedic, she's a nurse, and their kids are very young, money is very tight, and they're just kind of at that stage of marriage where they don't have time for each other at all. You know, they're just kind of struggling to keep up. Um, and James, as I said, is a paramedic in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I chose Cambridge for him because I just thought I thought it would be fascinating to write the life of a medic, and I thought, where better than a city like Cambridge where you have ex all the extremes. You have Harvard, and right outside the gates you have homeless drug addicts. You have the very, very wealthy, and you have the very blue collar all mixed in together. And if you're a medic, you don't know, you know, you don't discriminate. You go to each of these people in a row, and you don't know whose door you're walking through next. Um, I was lucky enough to do several ambulance ride-alongs with the medics in Cambridge, and I would just sit there in the back with the official coat that I always hoped they would give me, but they didn't. Um, they took it back at the end of every ship, and um, I just wrote down what happened. And, you know, obviously the technology of being a medic now versus in the 80s is vastly different, um, but I really just wanted to know how did these medics interact with their patients? What was the emotional currency between them? 
Um, and it was really an amazing thing to watch. I don't know if anyone here is a paramedic, but I felt like these patients were all in such a state of emergency, of course, that they just had to kind of give their lives over to these people. And there was this immediate bond that really I found very striking. And I was sitting there with a notebook, and maybe 100 patients came in and out in the time I was there, and not a single one ever said, like, who the hell is that? Why is she sitting here? What is she doing? Um, so that's James and Sheila. Uh, the next couple I started writing uh, are named Evelyn and Gerald, and they're kind of the, the opposite of James and Sheila. They're retired, they're really affluent, they're doing well, they're very relaxed. Um, and they're happy, but they're, the big sort of strain in their marriage is that their adult son, who is not really their favorite person in the world, truth be told, um, is divorcing their daughter-in-law, who is their favorite person in the world, and they're just devastated about this. Um, they are kind of an interesting example of how writers tend to kind of collect stories and moments as they go through life and use them later. Um, Maine had a bit of this too. In Maine, uh, there's kind of a, a turning point in the way that the grandmother and grandfather in the story meet. And um, their meeting story was something I actually overheard when I was at camp when I was eight. I heard one counselor telling another, this was how my parents met. And I was like, that's really fascinating. I got to hold on to that. And then, you know, 20-something years later, I put it in a novel. Um, with Evelyn and Gerald, uh, they were sort of inspired by this couple I met at a wedding about 10 years ago in Wisconsin. I was sitting uh, at a table with this elderly couple, and we were talking about how the bride and groom met, and then we were talking about how other couples met, and you know, naturally this came to how did these two meet. And the woman said very plainly that um, in her early 20s, she had been married, and her husband died very young. And she really never cared for his best friend while he was alive, but they ended up kind of coming together in their grief and ended up getting married. And this was the man she's now sitting beside, and now they're in their 80s. And so I thought that was really remarkable because to someone like me hearing it for the first time, this is the most fascinating, juicy thing about them. But to them, it's probably just you know, part of their story like any other couple's meeting story. So um, I held on to them, and, and they became Evelyn and Gerald. I don't know if they know that or how they feel about it, but uh, that is the case. Um, and then I started writing Delphine, who all really well-behaved women seem to really like her the best because she's not well-behaved at all. She uh, has left her husband for this much younger man, and now, you know, she's kind of given everything up. She lived in Paris. She ha married her business partner, and there wasn't much passion there. Um, so she leaves him, get, gives it all up, and then this new guy kind of wrongs her. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of women in this position might kind of fantasize about doing something really big and bold in response, and then you just, like, eat some ice cream and don't do it. But um, she does it. She goes to his apartment, and she trashes the place, and she's just nuts. And, and she was so fun to write, because I would never even like send back a bowl of soup. You know? So it was just wonderful. Um, and then the last couple in the book are Kate and Dan. Kate, uh, they're the most modern couple in the book. Kate, I think, was probably where I was working out a lot of my own thoughts about marriage. Uh, she's a child of divorce. She grew up in the 80s. And she's just kind of not sure that marriage is for her. Actually, she's sure that marriage is not for her. Um, her best friend uh, is a man named Jeff. And he's always agreed that, yeah, I don't believe in marriage either. 
Um, however, he is gay, and the second that same-sex marriage is legalized in New York, he gets engaged. And not only does he become engaged, but he becomes quite a bridezilla, much to her horror. And you know, through them, I was able to write about everything that's going on right now in the world of weddings, because it has become so crazy. Um, so those were all the couples. And as I was writing them, I felt like somebody was missing from the story. I knew that I wanted to have a character who could kind of speak to diamonds um, in a more academic way almost, somebody who could explain to us why it is that everyone wants these things. What do they really mean? Um, so I was reading all the nonfiction I could possibly find on the topic. And uh, I came across a book called The Heartless Stone by Tom Zollner, which is a great book, all about how diamonds get sort of right from being dug up to your finger. Uh, the whole passage of that. And there was a chapter about the advertising that went into diamonds starting in the 30s. And in that chapter, there was just one very short paragraph about a woman named Frances Garrity. It said she had written the line, a diamond is forever in 1947, and that she herself never married. And um, when I read that line, I underlined it five times and wrote, she's the missing piece. I knew that she would play a big role in the story. Um, also funny because when I finished writing Maine, I said, I can't write any more Irish Catholic characters, just enough of them for now, let's leave them out. And then of course I discover Francis Garrity, and so I have to break my own rule. Um, so Francis worked for an advertising agency called NWR, which was uh, based in Philadelphia at the time. And this is all kind of pre-Mad Men, you know, Mad Men is this sort of New York, women coming into their own, but Francis was there at a time where um, women were hired just to write for women. That was it. Uh, she, when she came to apply at NWR, they said, you're just in luck. We just had another woman leave, so we'll hire you, because you, you know, only women can possibly know about these silly lady products. Um, so she was put on the De Beers account right away. De Beers had come to NWR in 1938, uh, and the reason they came was because no one in America wanted to wear diamond rings. They just felt like they were sort of only for the very, very wealthy. And your average woman would not think of wearing a diamond ring. Um, so Ayer said, okay, we're going to change this. We're going to pull out all the stops. And it was one of the most expensive advertising campaigns to date at that time. Um, this was the beginning of product placement uh, of actresses wearing jewels you know, to the Oscars and all of that. This all came out of the De Beers advertising campaign. So all the diamonds that Marilyn Monroe wears uh, while she sings Diamonds or a Girl's Best Friend were provided from, by NWR. Actresses were suddenly appearing wearing diamonds at the Kentucky Derby, at the Oscars, and all of that. Um, and Frances wrote every one of their ads from 1942 until 1970. And within just a few years of this campaign, uh, there was an enormous shift. 80% of women in America were wearing diamond rings. It really worked. It really took hold. And uh, the number has never gone down. It has always remained at 80%, more or less, since then. Um, which I found really fascinating because, you know, I'm writing this book about how marriage has changed and how we've evolved and how the sexes have evolved, but this is one place where that hasn't really come into play. Um, part of what NWR did, because De Beers was a monopoly and couldn't enter the country, they had only one person who traveled to South Africa once a year with these big leather-bound books. 
and that would tell them everything that had been done on their campaign that year. Um, so although Frances wrote these ads for 30 years, she never met her client in this case. Um, but I had heard that these leather-bound books existed, and I wanted to see them very badly, because not only did they include you know, lists of all the celebrities who had been given these diamonds and all kinds of stuff like that, but they also included, um, and also the artists who did these. This was the first campaign where fine art was used instead of just a picture of the product. That also grew out of the fact that they weren't allowed legally to show a picture of the product because of antitrust laws. They couldn't show diamond rings or diamond earrings, so they had a painting by Picasso, or they had a painting by Dali that was original artwork done for De Beers. Um, so they also would do every year these psychological evaluations of men and women to figure out how can we get them to spend more and to want more. And, um, and I wanted to see these books. I started looking for them everywhere. And I was told, you know, I was told by one uh, nonfiction writer that they were at the Smithsonian. So I went to the NWR archive there and I just looked through every dry cleaning receipt, everything they had, couldn't find the memos. Then I was told they were at BU, at Harvard, and I chased them all around the East Coast. Couldn't find them. But meanwhile, I was kind of trying to put together a picture of Francis, and I had never written fiction about a real person before. Um, but the more I came to know about her, the more I felt this real dedication to getting her right. I think when I, as a reader, when I read fiction about a real person, I don't know if any of you feel the same way, I'm constantly kind of saying, is this part true? Is this part true? Is this part true? And I didn't want readers to have to do that with this book. I wanted to be able to say to you, everything you read about Francis in this book is true. So, you know, there, I remember there was one review of the book that said, oh God, she makes this character drink so many martinis. I'm like, no, she really drank that many martinis. That's why I made her do it in the book. Um, you know, she was such a pioneer, and she wanted to be known in her time and wasn't. So I felt if I'm bringing her to light, I better do her justice and really write about who she was. Um, she passed away in 1999. She had no children. She didn't marry. Uh, most of her friends have passed away at this point, and I sort of didn't know how I was going to approach this. But I started off by interviewing about 15 of her former coworkers. And these were like the original Mad Men. These were just these great ad guys who started working in the 50s and knew her, you know, moving forward. And I would ask them these questions like, you know, she never really rose above the level of senior copywriter. Do you think, why do you think that is? And they'd say, she just wasn't really that ambitious or she just didn't really want to. And then um, I finally interviewed my first woman who had worked with her. She had actually replaced Francis on the De Beers campaign. And um, when I told her, well, the guy said that Francis just wasn't that ambitious and probably wouldn't have wanted any kind of management position, she just burst out laughing and just said, you know, that wasn't even a dream. It wasn't even a possibility for her at that time. Um, I did go with these men. Francis, among other distinctions, was the first woman to ever belong to Marion Golf Club, which is where they had the US Open last year, a very Tony club in Pennsylvania. And she was the first woman to belong there without a husband. And it caused quite an uproar at the time. Um, so a lot of the men who worked with her at AIR still live on the main line in Philadelphia. And um, they invited me to come to the country club for lunch one day. And so we were there. We're having martinis. And you know, after they've had a few martinis, they said, well, we're going to just take you up to the head office and see if we can find anything about Francis. So they take me up to the head office. And the poor secretary there, they're like, bring us Frances Garrity's file. And you can tell she's sort of thinking, 
should, am I supposed to do that? Am I not supposed to do that? I don't really know. Um, but she brought it. And um, from that, I learned a little bit. Most importantly, I learned Frances' home address. And so um, I went to her house. I stood outside the house. And I was just way too chicken to knock on the door, even though I had been a journalist for eight years. I just was terrified. So I went back to New York, all the way back to New York, where I live. Um, and I was talking to a friend who was a private investigator. I was telling him this story. And he said, you know, when you knock on someone's door and like, ask them a question about themselves, you know, they can only do one of two things. They can slam the door in your face, or they can invite you in for a cup of tea. And so um, I thought, OK, that's a good point. So I got in touch with the woman who bought the house from Francis. And quite literally, she invited me to come for a cup of tea. So that was really nice. Um, and you know, she didn't really know that. She knew that Francis had written the line, but she didn't know that much about her. And it was funny because a few of the neighbors came over too, and they knew Frances, they remembered her, but none of them really knew what her career had been either. So it was kind of fun because we sort of traded information. And I explained to them this, this thing that she had really created this sense of emotional attachment that we have to a diamond ring today. Um, as I was leaving the house, uh, the woman said, you know, when Frances left, she left the house totally spick and span except this one box. Uh, and it was just boring work stuff, but I never threw it out. And if you want it, you can have it. And I opened up the box, and it contained all of the leather-bound, secret, juicy memos that I had been looking for for two years. Um, so I felt there was this kind of amazing connection to Francis there that you know couldn't really be explained. Um, and it really added, I think, a level of depth to the story because I was able to kind of dig into all of that information. Um, so additionally, last thing I will say, and then I want to take questions from you guys if you're feeling questiony, and if you're feeling shy, I'll read, but I'd rather hear your questions. Um, uh, a year into writing the book, I got engaged. And um, because I was writing this book, and because at this point I felt I was the expert on how diamonds have been sold to us, and what it's all about, and that it's all marketing. Because even these, these things, these truisms that we consider to be gospel about diamonds, like, they're all from the ad campaigns. So um, how many of you are familiar with like the four Cs, cut, clarity, color, all that? Um, I mean, every one of my friends, when they got engaged, they really took that very seriously about the four Cs. But the four Cs came out of an advertising campaign in the 70s, until then, until in the 60s, actually. Until then, um, it had all been about the bigger the diamond, the better. Uh, at that time, De Beers suddenly came across a surplus of tiny, tiny stones. And they needed people to buy these stones. But they had been telling them for 30-something years, don't buy tiny stones. So suddenly they said, OK, how else can we sell other than just size alone? And so they said, well, how about you know, other important things like clarity, like if you looked at it under a microscope, there would be no flaws and things like this. And they also created the Eternity Band and the Pave designs and all of these. They would have competitions every year, and they still do, um, for jewelers around the world to compete to kind of make rings out of what it was they had going that year. If it happened to be very small stones, then very small stones. Um, another one of the things that I think we always take as gospel is the two-month salary thing. Um, that came about in the 80s in an ad campaign because, you know, every year AIR was going to their consumers and asking questions. And at that point, 
the question they wanted to have answered was, why were men spending less than they wanted them to be spending on rings? And so they asked these guys, why did you spend what you spent? And um, they said, well, I just asked my dad what he spent, and I spent the same. So they said, well, that's not going to really work if it's 20, 30 years later. Um, we need something that can kind of be controlled for inflation and that is aspirational for everyone, no matter what they make. And so they said, OK, two months salary. That's what it will be. So they started this saturation ad campaign uh, that had you know, phrases like, isn't two months salary a small price to pay for her happiness and things like that? And um, who's going to say, yeah, you know, yes, it is. So um, it worked really well. And shortly thereafter, in the early 90s, they started spreading this campaign to other countries. They had been spreading it to other countries for a while, but in the early 90s in particular, they took it to Japan. And in Japan, there was absolutely no precedent for diamond engagement rings at all. Um, but they said, not only are they going to make this happen there, but two months' salary might be even a little low. It works so well here. Let's just kind of bump it up a little. So those ads were the exact same ads, but they turned it to three months' salary. So they would say, isn't three months' salary a small price to pay for her happiness? And that worked very well. Um, so I always tell people, get engaged in Japan if you're looking for the best ring you can get. Um, but anyway, when I got engaged, uh, I didn't want a diamond because I just felt, whatever, I, I don't want that thing that they've been selling me. I'm going to get something else. I'm going to get a sapphire. So I got a sapphire. So a year goes by between my getting engaged and my finding the memos at Francis Garrity's house. And I was so thrilled to have them that I, um, my book was actually due to my publisher the next day. So it was essentially done. Uh, this was like the last possible second I could have found them. Um, I was so excited that I couldn't even drive back to New York. I had to drive into the nearest parking lot, which was a Whole Foods parking lot, and I sat under the street lamp in my car just reading all the memos. And one of the first things that I came across uh, was a memo from the 50s, and it said, some girls are going to think they're just too smart for diamonds. So for them, try to sell them a sapphire flanked by diamonds on either side. <laughs> And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for J. Courtney Sullivan and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question is about the film adaptation of Sullivan's book, The Engagements, and what Hollywood producers are looking for when turning literature into movies. Oh, I wish I knew that because then I could get my other two made into movies too. Um, you know, I think that uh, with Hollywood right now, it's very, very hard to have a, a, a sort of a drama, just a story about relationships made into a film, especially one that's mostly about women. So I am very, very grateful and happy that this is happening. I think the trend really is toward like buying all the vampire books and turning them into films. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It is a really kind of a tough time, uh, especially, I think, for stories about women. Um, I've heard a lot in the last couple of years about this that really, if it's not like a Seth Rogen vehicle, like buddy comedy or about vampires, then forget it. So um, that leads me to the fact that my next book is about Seth Rogen becoming a vampire. <laughs> and it's available for film now. Just, just kidding. <laughs> 
Our next question asker wonders, after Sullivan found Francis's leather-bound workbooks, did she then have a desire to change anything in her book? I, yes, I changed a lot. Um, I always felt uneasy about fabricating some of that stuff because I knew that the truth was going to be better than fiction in that respect. Um, I wanted to know what they really did do, and I wanted to know really what they, they thought about, particularly about men, because it's interesting, a lot of these, these ads have nothing to do with women, because the earliest surveys they did, they found that women would actually drive the price down. If a woman was consulted about how much her ring costs, she would often say, you know, well, I want to have a wedding, I want to buy a house, so don't spend that much on a ring. But they were kind of convincing men that what she has on her finger says a lot about you, which it sort of does, you know, in this kind of gross way. And so men were the ones who were much more inclined to want to spend more. And they were kind of always looking at how to exploit their psychology to get them to buy more. Um, you know, and it also kind of came to a point where when they started this campaign, um, most people didn't even want a diamond ring. And within 10 years of that, most people wouldn't get married without a diamond ring. They would defer the engagement until they could afford that ring. Um, and that's still kind of the way it is now, you know, that they had, a, I can't remember exactly the number, but it was a really high percentage of people who said it's not a real engagement unless there is a ring. And I think you will hear that, you know, if, you, if you're talking to people today, it's like someone says they're engaged, they don't have a ring. Ooh, I don't know. You know, it, depending on who you are, that might be still quite shocking, which is really shocking in and of itself. Um, so yeah, I, my book was no longer due the next day after I found the memos. I called my editor from the Whole Foods parking lot, my, my satellite office, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I think I got like a week extension. So I spent about 20 hours a day looking at the memos and just filling the book with everything I could. This club book audience member commented that she read Sullivan's book in her neighborhood book club. One of the members was an older woman in a same-sex marriage and wanted Sullivan to know that the book really resonated with her. Well, tell her, tell her I said hello and I appreciate her picking it. I think um, it's funny, you know, I, don't, uh, I had a, a young girl come up to me. I went to Smith College and Smith College is this sort of steeped in lesbian politics or so they would have you believe uh, at the moment. I think this is just kind of what it is to be in a liberal arts college, but anyway. Uh, Smith, there's a lot of conversation about it. Um, but I did a reading at Smith recently, and there was a young girl who came up to me, and, and she said um, that she is in a relationship with a woman, and that she was just very, she liked my books because there are always characters in them who are gay, but it's not about them being gay. It's just that, kind of like in life, there are people who are gay, you know, and like, that's not their whole story. That's part of their identity, but that's not the story. Um, so that made me very happy, and it's something I hadn't really thought consciously about, but I like that she had picked that up. The next question is whether or not Sullivan is working on any new projects. I am, yes. I am. Um, uh, Maine was about, I don't know how many of you have read Maine, but Maine is about, um, thank you ladies, is about uh, an Irish Catholic family, as I said, and, and it sort of centers on this matriarch who is very... She's kind of scary. She's very abrasive. You know, she, she always says what she's thinking. And she's like a very sort of bitter woman. Um, and when I would give readings, especially in New England, they seem to always be full of Irish Catholic women attending, I would have really strong reactions about this character. Her name was Alice. Um, 
I did an event in Maine where it turned into like, like a support group, like uh, everyone was just crying, talking about their mothers, their grandmothers, how horrible they were. It was really interesting. It was like a group therapy session. Um, that's never happened before or since, but it was great. Um, I did an event recently at a library. I wasn't even talking about Maine. I was talking about the engagements. And as I was pulling out, it was dark out. I'm pulling out of my parking space. And this woman is like knocking on my window. It scared me to death. I look at her. She doesn't look that scary. So I roll down the window. And she's like, I just have to say that Alice is my mother. And I was like, <laughs> OK. Um, but I would get that reaction. But then I would, I would probably just as often get this other reaction from Irish Catholic women saying, like they grew up in that generation and they had the opposite mother. They almost wished they had had an Alice because at least Alice said what she thought, whereas their mothers had been the type to just be the quiet, sainted, perfect woman who never said anything. And then their mothers died and they felt like, did I even ever know my mother? And I heard that so many times that I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I want to write about that. And so I'm writing a novel now that's about a woman. Uh, you know, she's, she's come from Ireland to the US when she was young. And, had seven kids, and she's died, and the whole book takes place around her wake and funeral, and kind of a lot of things begin to come out about her um, that her kids never knew before, which I think really does tend to happen. I mean, I can't even, I feel like every wake that's ever occurred in my family, it's like a play. It's like the nun who you haven't talked to in 20 years showed up. How did this happen? So uh, it doesn't feel like that far-fetched to me. So that's what I'm working on now. Sullivan mentioned that she has on occasion listened into and collected conversations from unsuspecting people. This audience member asks if she literally writes him down in a notebook for future reference or collects him only when she's in the process of writing a book. A long, long time ago, like when I was in college, I would do this exercise all the time where I would go to um, Starbucks or Barnes and Noble and I would just sit down and actually write out word for word in a notebook what the people next to me were saying, which is really dangerous because like, I'm, I'm lucky nobody ever like, slapped me. But, um, but I, I felt like it was really a good, a good tool because uh, it actually kind of programmed your, your hand and your brain to sort of write the way people actually talk. Um, I don't like in a novel when people are talking and I just feel like no one really talks to each other that way. You know, I want real conversation. Um, so now, I don't really do that as much. I think I've become so good at, at eavesdropping and listening, and I don't need to write it down. Um, I think the stuff that is meant to stay with you kind of stays. Like the, this couple at the wedding 10 years ago, I never wrote anything down about them. But I always, they kind of kept coming back to me. And I think that happens in life. You know, our memories are so odd. There are things that happened two months ago that we probably don't remember, and things that happened 20 years ago that we will never forget. And I think that those are the things I tend to mine for, for fiction. And also, I feel like when you're writing a novel, it's almost like when you're like newly in love with someone and you know you're so annoying, but you can't think of anything but that person. Like, I remember a friend of mine. Uh, at one point was dating someone, let's say his name was Bill, and she was, every comment was about Bill, 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 you know, and then at one point we were like eating hamburgers and she's like, Bill loves ketchup. And it was like, okay, <laughs> enough, this is crazy, you know, we've crossed into the dark side here. But uh, it's kind of like that when you're writing a novel, suddenly everything around you you want to collect and you think, well, could that have applied to this character? Do I want to use this for that character? So um, I think it kind of just happens organically as you go. The next question is if Sullivan reads fiction, and if so, what kind? 
Yeah, I do. I, I mostly read fiction. Um, well, I should say I mostly read fiction sort of for my own enjoyment. I end up reading a lot of nonfiction uh, for research for my books, but um, if I'm going to pick a novel I'll, or pick a book to read, it will usually be a novel. Um, and I probably about like 70% of them would be contemporary novels. Um, I probably read a lot of novels by women and not a lot by men. I probably shouldn't admit that, but it's true. Uh, I might be balancing out the universe there because a lot of people won't read women, so maybe it's okay. Um, but it's not totally true, but I would say probably, I'm trying to think of like the last five novels I've read have all been by women. Another audience member explained to Sullivan that she's in a Catholic book club that recently read Maine. Usually, there's a lot of dissension in the books they choose, but Sullivan's book was universally accepted. That's really great. I was afraid I was going to have to like run out and hide when you said that. But um, you know, it's funny. A friend of mine works uh, lives in Racine, Wisconsin, and she she works for a Catholic high school there. And um, she had done a a charity event, you know, an auction. And she asked if I could do like a book club, a Skype with a book club as one of the prizes. So I said sure. And then um, the group that ended up getting it. Not only were they getting it at the Catholic school fundraiser, but they were actually like a, like a Catholic prayer group who also has a book club on the side. And I was really nervous. I thought, oh gosh, what are they going to think about this? But they really liked it too. I think it's a book that not every character in the book uh, feels the same way about the Catholicism they grew up with, but I think it is respectful of, of religion. The next question is about what Sullivan did with Francis's leather-bound books after finishing the engagements. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I still have them, um, but so in the, in the engagements, there's another character uh, who I didn't even go into tonight. Her name's Dorothy Dignam, and she was a real person too. She was Francis's coworker, and while Francis did all of the advertising, wrote all the ads, Dorothy did all the publicity, so she was the one who really did like the more glamorous stuff, like going to Hollywood and convincing producers to put diamonds in their movies and things like that. Francis was sort of a loner. She didn't really get in for kind of like, she wasn't, she wasn't there to sort of make a mark for womankind. She was just there to be herself and she felt like working. She didn't want to get married. She wanted to be a writer. Um, Dorothy was, was the other type. She, she was all about kind of paving the way for younger women. Um, she was in charge of like the Women's Advertising Council in New York and she uh, really documented her career um, as did some other women in advertising at that time. I mean, she, I would say she was like a feminist, but at the same time, she was very practical. She, her first piece of advice to all the young girls in the office would be, you should keep a stiff upper lip with some lipstick on it. Um, so <laughs> her, her, um, her papers are at, at Harvard at Radcliffe um, in their archive there. They have an amazing archive of women. Uh, they have Amelia Earhart's papers, they have Julia Child's papers, and they also have the papers of the women in advertising group. Um, Dorothy's papers contain like short stories she wrote when she was eight years old. I mean, she put everything in there. Um, she put her diaries in there. Uh, one of her diary entries, my favorite one, because I feel like I was probably as precocious as she was. Uh, she's 13 and she writes, today I completed my third novel. And that's just the entry. That's it. <laughs> Um, so I want to put these uh, memos and everything else I've found of Francis's because 
the other thing that was in that box with the memos were wonderful family photographs of hers, um, which I have now too. So I want to make her her own um, archive and put it there with Dorothy's. This next question comes from an audience member wondering if Sullivan would ever consider writing a nonfiction book on Frances. I've kind of thought about it because I really fell so in love with her that I, you know, as you can probably tell from when I talk about her, um, I still write with her picture hanging over my desk and, you know, I have her dogs, like she had a great day and I have his picture on my bulletin board. She would probably think I was a total kook, but um, <laughs> uh, I think that if I were going to go that route, I would probably not write about Frances, but about another woman, because I think what was kind of amazing about Frances um, was that she's somebody none of us would have ever heard of, you know, but then you, you kind of piece together this person and I loved doing that. I think I would be more inclined to kind of do it about someone else we've never heard of, um, since I've already written this about her. I mean, I, I would love, you never know with movies, but the main reason I would love for a movie of this to get made is because I just think she really wanted to be known and have her name known. And, and uh, unfortunately for those of us in the book world, like the film is usually the thing that kind of brings it to the mainstream. And I would love that for her. I think that would be really cool. This next audience member asks if Sullivan plans to revisit any of her characters. I don't right now, but, um, but I do think about it sometimes. I don't think I would ever write like a straight up sequel, but I might try to sort of play with that idea. I don't know um, if any of you have read Maylee um, Malloy's novels. Uh, there's two that are connected. One is called um, A Family Daughter, and the other is called Liars and Saints. Highly recommend them. They're really, really good. They're also very short, so um, you could read them for your book club, and you could read two in one month, I think. Um, but they're, they're um, really fascinating because they're about the same family, but written in totally different ways. Um, I won't say more about them because I don't want to give it away, but, but uh, yeah, you know, I think if I were to write about one of my characters, it would probably be something like that, to pull one of them out and not just write a direct sequel. Um, my first novel, because it was about a group of women, friends in their early to mid-twenties, I kind of think about them the most often. Um, people ask me about Maine the most often, that they would like a sequel about the characters in Maine. Um, but I think, for me, the characters in Commencement were so young when I left them, now much younger than I am now, so I sort of wonder, whatever happened with them? And I have had um, a couple of times, it happened with Commencement and happened with Maine too, that uh, a reader would actually write an outline for what the sequel should be, and it was fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. <laughs> This question is whether or not Frances did end up getting her gold watch. Yeah, I don't think it gives it away to say that, you know, she, was, she had this sort of honor after her retirement that's in the book. Everything about that is true. So, you know, she, um, it's so funny. When I started talking to her coworkers, then, you know, people just know each other, you know, and you talk to someone, it's like, oh, I know that guy's cousin or whatever. Kind of happened with Frances where one of these guys who had worked with her, he said, he was the one who said, you really don't want to talk to me. I don't know that much because he had worked with her in the 70s. He's a lot younger. You know, he, he worked with her just as she was leaving, maybe late 60s into 1970. So he only knew her for two years and he was probably like 20 at the time. So he wasn't really paying attention to this old woman, you know, in the next office. But when I talked to him, then he remembered that his mother had been Frances Garrity's bridge partner at Marion. And so he was the one to tell me the story about what happened with the women from the bridge club, which was a true story. Another club book audience member wonders if Sullivan gets a say at all in the decisions for the movie adaptation of her book. 
I have absolutely no say in anything. They're kind of like, thank you for your book, go away now. I think that's kind of customary, um, which I am very much okay with because I think that, um, you know, I think for all of us as readers, when you, when you see a book that you love made into a movie, almost all the time you don't feel that satisfied. And I feel like if you're writing, if it's your book that you wrote, like I, have, I feel like I have to let it um, just be a totally different thing. Let it be kind of inspired by the book, but not expect it to just be the book with pictures, because I think that would be really hard. And I know already there are a lot of changes to the, the plot. Our last question of the night comes from a gentleman wondering if Sullivan thinks that in the future, women will be proposing to men. I actually got a call yesterday from the Boston Globe. They were doing a story. I guess Johnny Depp recently got engaged, and he got a diamond engagement ring. And so um, they were kind of asking me about this. Is this a trend? And um, you know, despite I think what I've written about in the book is like that De Beers had these ad campaigns that were just completely fantastic, and they all went over so well. But they also had campaigns that were just a total bust. And one of those was. Uh, in the 70s, I think they kind of thought, well, we're in a time of sensitive men, so let's try to get a campaign, a campaign going for diamond rings for men. And the ads um, from this are very, you know that movie Anchorman, Ron Burgundy with Will Ferrell? Like, the ads remind me of that, where there's like a guy with a mustache like lying on a sheepskin rug or something, and you know, it just never took off. Like, men didn't want to wear the diamond rings, and women didn't want to buy them the diamond rings. Um, so I don't know, have we reached a point where we can go there? I don't really think so, but may, do we want to reach that point? I don't know. No, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you guys so much for coming. This was really fun. Well, that's it from our Chanhassen Library event with Jay Courtney Sullivan. Catch our next club book with Amanda Copeland at Stillwater Public Library on Thursday, April 24th, 2014 at 7 p.m. Meet Amanda Copeland, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Club Book Facebook page. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to Carver County Library for hosting J. Courtney Sullivan, and to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.